Hey there. One theme we've been exploring for years on this show is we've got more legal rights than most of us know about. And once we know, the question becomes, how can we enforce them? And as our story this time shows, it can be, and you're going to see where I'm going with this in a minute, like pulling teeth. All right, let's go. Susan Rice was out for a walk in her neighborhood in Atlanta. It was a beautiful day, just a bright blue sky, and I was just having a great morning. Then she was crossing a big street and saw a car starting to make a turn in her direction. And instead of going around me, he pointed his car right at me and accelerated. And I looked at what would have been his face, but the windshield was tinted. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You're trying to kill me. I really thought he was trying to kill me. Next thing she knew, she was on the pavement. I spit out a tooth when I sat up. It's probably still there. (laughs) Do you avoid that route these days when you walk? Haven't been by since. I can't. Part of me wants to go find my tooth. Of course, she's had to get that tooth replaced. Lots of others, too. And here's where things get messy. Because you're probably aware, health insurance generally does not cover our teeth. It's like they're not part of our body, whatever. That's its own awful thing. But what Susan needed was supposed to be the exception. As she told me, this wasn't the result of poor dental hygiene. Her teeth got knocked out of her mouth by a speeding car. Medical insurance is supposed to cover that. And she knew it. And now... She's been fighting for a year and a half to get them to pay attention. This is An Arm and a Leg, a show about why healthcare costs so freaking much and what we can maybe do about it. I'm Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter and I like a challenge. So our job on this show is to take one of the most enraging, terrifying, depressing parts of American life and bring you something entertaining, empowering, and useful. I got to say up front, This is a pretty enraging, terrifying, depressing story. I'm not sure I would say it has a happy ending. For one thing, it's not even over. But we've also learned a lot along the way. And Susan has managed to get her insurance company to reimburse her for $11,000 so far. She's still working on them for the next $70,000 or so. And Susan and I got to consult with one of my very favorite experts on enforcing our legal rights, Jacqueline Fox. And that conversation opened our eyes to a few things. And... Just as we thought we were about to wrap up editing this episode, we learned some things that put the whole story in a different light. Because it turns out, this may not just be an individual horror story. Now, it looks related to much bigger accusations about one of the biggest players in the Obamacare marketplaces. And that's knowledge I think could be useful to a lot of people. Back to the beginning. That driver wasn't trying to kill Susan. He said he didn't see me. He probably didn't. He was about 83, and I had real roomy-looking eyes, you know, probably had glaucoma. They went through a process to have his license revoked, and he died not long afterwards. Meanwhile, there's Susan in the hospital. This was my introduction to healthcare because I have never been to a—I've never been in a hospital. I'm just—you know, I've just never had anything. She and her husband retired early, and they've got no kids, so she had fewer distractions than most people, and— the full services of what she calls her emotional support husband, as she explored the American healthcare system. Golly, it was way too much at one time. I mean, she had multiple injuries with different medical teams to coordinate. There's an ENT pulling dried blood out of her ear canal where her jawbone had torn a hole through it. For a minute, there's concern she could lose her vision. And she's got major injuries to her shoulder and arm, which have to get metal plates implanted. 
When we talk on Zoom a year and a half later, she shows me the arm. Can you see it? Uh, oh, so, yeah. Um, now I see it. Yeah. So it's a, there's like it's a big about scar running from your elbow down your seven wrist. Seven inches. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Don't look so sad. <laughs> this is so much. <laughs> that's a pity face. <laughs> Susan Rice is not a complainer. This is a lot, even before you get to the financial side. I mean, there's car insurance companies involved, too, like the driver's insurance and some coverage from her policy. It's a lot to sort out. And it gives her good reason to read her health insurance policy closely, especially when it becomes clear there aren't any in-network oral surgeons she can go to. And then I keep reading in the contract that none of my out-of-network expenses will be paid unless they're pre-authorized, and I couldn't get pre-authorizations. And there's time pressure to sort out the payments and get on with treatment, especially with her jaw wired shut. If my mouth is wired together too long, I may not be able to open it ever again. So she's doing her best to figure out the insurance stuff at a point when just getting through the day is a struggle. I didn't want to eat. I had an exposed root in my mouth. The tooth had shattered in half. So a lot of things were excruciating to to eat or drink. I have seen the pictures of her in the hospital and they're horrifying. So all of that is the background when Susan Rice tells me this. And at times it was worse than the injuries. Dealing with the insurance company was was worse than the injuries. I mean, ouch. From early on, she kept a lot of records. I didn't start that way, but I realized quickly that it was important. So she's got binders full of correspondence, and there's a lot packed into a 29-page log she kept of every phone call, every email, sometimes three or four a day. So my blood pressure is probably pretty high because I just read all 29 pages of my communication log, and it all came back, and I'm just furious again. Of course. It's intense reading. She's told many times to call the insurance company's dental insurance arm, but Susan doesn't have dental insurance, and... Dental insurance generally would not be a huge help in this kind of situation because it often has a really low cap on benefits. And in any case, this isn't a dental claim. It's medical, just like her shoulder and her arm and her ear and her eyes and all those other claims do get paid. So she does occasionally do what she's told and she calls the dental insurance folks and they say, well, you don't have dental insurance. Bye. I was just so mad, spitting mad. It was so unfair. And communication is difficult. Never could find the same person twice. For instance, her insurance assigns a case manager, but when she calls and calls and calls over several weeks, he doesn't answer. And his phone is not set up for voicemail. She sends documents via FedEx, signature required. My FedEx package was signed by somebody, and I don't know where that is. And neither does anybody at the insurance company. I mean, nobody she talks to ever admits to having seen it. She files appeals. She complains to the state insurance commissioner whose office closes her case without apparently really reading her file. Even the insurance commissioner's office said the dental coverage is limited. I said limited to what? Occasionally, something does seem to work. By the end of 2021, eight months after she got hit, insurance has reimbursed her for the first $11,000 worth of work on her mouth. But that would leave at least $70,000 worth of work ahead. A couple months later, she goes on the company's Facebook page to vent, and she gets a call the next day from a care concierge who does seem to get it, but who doesn't seem to have any power to move things along. 
She probably quit. I think my case manager quit. I know this other woman the last spoke with quit. Yeah, that's this other case manager who comes on the scene in June 2022 and quickly, finally, gets a pre-authorization approved. And she calls the next day to make sure Susan's seen the approval and, quote, to tell me her last day would be the following day. After being with the company just over two months, she'd had enough. She told Susan she had spent a career in health insurance and worked for eight different companies. She tells Susan she has never worked for an insurer as broken as this one. The treatment takes months. They're reconstructing her mouth. The last entry in this 29-page log is dated September 13th, 2022. She calls insurance. My authorization end date was September 7th, but treatment has not concluded. Do I need to request an extension? They tell her, nope, you need to submit a whole new authorization request. Holy shit. When we talk about it, I tell her she's been as consistent and organized as anybody I've ever talked with. If, if somebody had a job, Dan, there's no way. A job or kids. Or, I mean, I just had the advantage of my situation, my general situation. Yeah. It was my time. Yeah, right. And I was pissed. So, <laughs> still, still kind of am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was our first conversation. And there was somebody I wanted Susan to compare notes with, somebody who we've talked with on this show before and someone who, as a listener to this show, Susan says she took inspiration from, law professor Jacqueline Fox, who... 30 years ago, started a law practice representing people like Susan who were trying to enforce their rights when dealing with health insurance. That was an unusual practice, and now that she's teaching full-time, I wish somebody else would take it up. Meanwhile, I'm glad she takes my calls and teaches us stuff. And I happen to know that Jacqueline Fox had fought this exact same issue, getting a health insurance company to cover something tooth-related for a member of her own family not that long ago. We'll hear about that, and we'll hear Susan Rice and Jacqueline Fox compare notes right after this. This episode of An Arm and a Leg is produced in partnership with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit newsroom covering healthcare in America. KHN is not affiliated with the giant healthcare player Kaiser Permanente. We'll have more information about KHN at the end of this episode. And this and every episode of An Arm and a Leg is made possible by you. Your donations fund the majority of our budget, so thank you. And right now, thanks to a program called Newsmatch, those donations count for double. You can donate right now at armandalegshow.com slash support. Okay, so when I first started talking with Jacqueline Fox a couple years ago, she was wrapping up teaching a health policy course, and she said, for the final, I'm actually having my students write an insurance appeal. And would I like to see a recording of the lecture where she explained the assignment? I was like, yeah, you bet. This is a case that really happened that my stepdaughter very sweetly is allowing me to use as, as our class thing. As it happens, the subject of the case has a lot in common with Susan. So she was diagnosed with something called a Brody bite, which is this weird misalignment of your teeth. And it's a mess. It's not very common. And getting it corrected involves extensive oral surgery. And getting that surgery paid for by health insurance involves making a case. So Jacqueline walked her students through the basics. First, download the full insurance policy. 
not the benefits brochure. The actual contract, the actual full declaration of the benefits you're entitled to. And look through its table of contents and its dozens, if not hundreds of pages, looking for what's relevant to your case. And, you know, there's more. This is a full hour law class, but you get the idea. Now, of course, when Jacqueline did this all herself, she had two advantages. One, even though she wasn't practicing law anymore, she was trained as a lawyer. And specifically, she was a lawyer with tons of experience getting insurance companies to pay up. And two, she had time on her side. She knew way in advance that her stepdaughter would need this treatment. She says she started years ahead of time. So when I get her together with Susan Rice, we quickly establish Susan did everything right. And so did you write them and say, I want this to be processed through the medical insurance? Oh, we've done that a zillion times. And have they ever answered? No, they don't respond. No, they don't respond. The problem wasn't that Susan didn't have the law on her side. It wasn't that she didn't know the law was on her side. And it wasn't that she didn't pursue her rights under the law in a clear, persistent, organized way with plenty of follow-up. It was that even with all that, she couldn't manage to get anybody on the other side who met what I'm starting to call the three magic conditions. They were competent to understand what she was telling them. They were willing to listen. And they were authorized to do something about it. And Jacqueline says that, unfortunately, getting someone with all three qualities, especially when you're dealing with something that's not routine, is, you know, pretty much always going to be tough. They don't do well with the crossover between the dental and the medical. And the confusion and the complexity is actually, unfortunately, really normal. And that's despite the fact there's no complexity at all legally. It says right in Susan's insurance policy, you know, she downloaded that whole contract, you bet, and she cites the page and the paragraph in her correspondence that if your teeth get messed up because of injury, that's covered. But somehow the insurance company allows their staff to get confused. And they have no incentive to fix it. So they have cash in hand just by saying no. So then you've got... (laughs) Susan, your your face just (laughs) fell with that. Just like, oh, my God. It's so twisted. (laughs) Now, Susan may have a legal remedy, at least in concept, because most states allow consumers to complain in court that an insurance company is dealing with them in bad faith. The law generally in most jurisdictions recognizes the imbalance of power between the insurance company and the insured. And so they have obligations. Often it's called fiduciary obligations Mm -hmm. to act in good faith. So dealing in bad faith is actually an affirmative complaint you may be able to bring. That's the good news. And Jacqueline wants me to mention, people who get insurance from work, which is most of us, often that insurance is governed by a federal law that preempts state insurance laws. And that federal law does not allow suing for bad faith. And that's a whole other episode we need to do someday. But Susan bought her insurance on the state Obamacare exchange. State laws, like bad faith, apply here. And so if there are damages that are related to them doing a bad job, you may be able to recover those damages. That's more good news. But then there's the bad news. Usually in a case like this, the damages aren't high enough for an attorney to step in. Usually it's where they've refused to pay for something and someone died as a result of it that you're going to see this. Which isn't Susan's case. You know, at least she's alive. And then... Jacqueline tosses out what she says is a highly speculative idea. This could potentially be a class action. Oh. Oh. 
right? If you could show, I mean, it's just worth looking at. I would, I'm saying this out loud in public or whatever, (laughs) with all the caveats I just said that I don't practice in Georgia, I don't know any of those sorts of things, yada, yada. I still would be intrigued by that because if there is a pattern of this and you can prove it, that's a really interesting question, right? Yeah, pretty interesting. So it was a good conversation with real affirmation from Jacqueline. You've handled this beautifully. I mean, I'm super impressed, especially because you were the person who was in the accident. But no immediate solutions. Here's where things stand. Susan went ahead and continued with her treatment. She paid cash and filed a claim for reimbursement in October. When we talked in December, she was still waiting to hear back. The company gave itself up to 45 business days to respond, and she'd done the math. I mean, that puts me December 31. I just so appreciate you sharing this with me. And you've been so organized and so persistent and so clear. It's a lot of money. Yeah, right? It's a lot of money. (laughs) It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And they owe me. That's the other They owe me. I will send you an email when I hear from them. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. I hope this helps somebody. Me too. Me too. And then, twist. As we were editing and fact-checking this story, we learned a couple of things. One, Susan is not alone in fighting with this insurance company called Ambetter. Not by a long shot. It turns out, Ambetter plans enroll more people than any other insurer on the Obamacare marketplace. That's according to our pals at Kaiser Health News. The company behind them is called Centene. And as we've been learning, Centene and Ambetter have kind of a reputation. You know, not a great one. Our producer, Emily Pisacueta, has been digging. Yeah, so Dan, Centene runs Medicaid-managed care programs in a lot of states. And a bunch of those states have said Centene overcharged them for how it managed drug benefits. They've paid more than half a billion dollars in settlements to those states. Well, those are the 12 settlements we know about so far. Regulatory findings show Centene is looking at a total of 13 such settlements. So apparently there's one more still to be announced. And we should say... Centene hasn't admitted wrongdoing in any of these cases. And then there's this whole other thing. Remember how Jacqueline Fox was speculating, gee, it sure would be interesting to see if somebody could bring a class action lawsuit against this company. Well, in August 2022, a law firm in Chicago filed one and the accusations definitely ring a bell. The complaint says that Ambetter plans on ACA marketplaces in 26 states give potential customers false information about which doctors are in their networks. So you go on healthcare.gov looking for a plan. You can fill in the names of doctors and providers you see. It tells you which plans cover those doctors. And this suit says Ambetter is lying about that? It says they're advertising provider networks that aren't real. Members would try to make appointments with doctors Ambetter was supposed to cover, only to find out that those doctors didn't take their insurance, and that very few doctors in their area did. This is super closely related to what happened to Susan. Like, when she needed a provider, she found there were no in-network providers in her area. You know, zero. And Susan lives in Atlanta. It's like one of the biggest cities in the country. And it's not like Susan picked Ambetter because she was looking for an oral surgeon, but... It does seem like her experience and this accusation line up. Yep. And another part of the filing calls Susan's case to mind. Quote, Ambetter plans routinely refuse to pay for medical services and medications that the plan purportedly covers. The complaint cites seven different lawsuits against Centene and at least one subsidiary for this very thing. They all seem to have been filed by medical practices. And it says not paying is a reason the networks Ambetter does have are so small. 
it says providers don't want to work with them. I mean, these are accusations, not a finding in court. And I don't know how often other insurers get sued over this sort of thing, but geez, sure sounds like Centene and Ambetter get accused kind of a lot of not paying things they're supposed to pay. The complaint from that lawsuit says Ambetter targets low-income consumers with its plans. And I guess it would be easier to offer low premiums if, as alleged, they're cutting corners when it comes to paying for medical care. Susan says she wouldn't have been able to put up this kind of fight if she didn't have the time and energy and resources for, you know, she retired early, has no kids. That does not describe most folks with modest incomes. And speaking of, here's the other thing we learned. While we were editing this story, I got an email from Susan with a picture of a rejection she just received from Ambetter. They were refusing to pay $27,000, and she figures this means they're going to refuse to pay the rest, too. I emailed back. I let her know about the class action. She replied, juicy. And she says she's got a lot to think about. And when Susan says she hopes this story can be of use to somebody, here's where I say, maybe it can. And if you're listening, I think you can help. Because If I were buying insurance on the Obamacare marketplaces for 2023, I might want to know what we're learning about Ambetter. Seems like Susan's story is relevant to a lot of people. Yeah, I said at the top, this stuff we learned put the story in a whole new light because it went from looking like an individual horror story to looking like an example of what's alleged to be widespread abuse by a huge player in the Obamacare marketplaces. As we get ready to release this episode, Open enrollment has just closed for Obamacare plans that start January 1st. But even if you've already signed up, you've got until January 15th to switch to a different plan that would start in February. So given what we're learning about Ambetter insurance plans, which are on the market in more than half the states, it's a really good time to let folks know whatever doctors and providers your plan said you'd have access to, call their offices and make extra sure, maybe especially if you've signed up with Ambetter. And this is where I say, we've asked Ambetter and Centene about what Susan Rice has told us. They haven't responded. News stories about the state settlements and the class action, quote, company statements to the effect of, we've done nothing wrong here. We will keep digging on Ambetter. If we learn more, we will share on social media, maybe an extra newsletter. And I hope you'll help us pass it around. I'd love to see how far it can go. This is a project we're all doing together. And yes, this is where I mention. We rely on you to make all of it happen, including financially. And I'm asking for your help now at the end of the year because your giving now actually counts for double. Newsmatch from the Institute for Nonprofit News matches every donation up to $15,000. And you know what's cool? You have given us that $15,000. And you know what's really cool? A small crew of super donors is putting up money to match the next $10,000. So now is the time when you can really pitch in and be matched by your fellow listeners. We've got big plans for the coming year, some big stories and some plans to bring our information to even more people. And you can help make all of that happen. The place to go is armandalegshow.com slash support. That's armandalegshow.com slash support. Thank you. I'll catch you soon. Till then, take care of yourself. This episode of An Arm and a Leg was produced by me, Dan Weissman, with help from Emily Pizzacreta and edited by Marion Wang. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Adam Raymunda is our audio wizard. Our music is by Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. Gabrielle Healy is our managing editor for audience. She edits the First Aid Kit newsletter. B. Bosco is our consulting director of operations. Sarah Balama is our operations manager. 
This season of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit news service about healthcare in America. It's an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation. KHN is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare outfit. They share an ancestor, the 20th century industrialist Henry J. Kaiser. When he died, he left half his money to the foundation that later created Kaiser Health News. You can learn more about him and Kaiser Health News at armandalegshow.com slash Kaiser. Zach Dyer is senior audio producer and Tarina Lofton is audience engagement producer at KHN. They are editorial liaisons to this show. Thanks to Public Narrative. That's a Chicago-based group that helps journalists and nonprofits tell better stories for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about Public Narrative at www.publicnarrative.org. And thanks to everybody who supports this show financially. In fact, it's time to shout out some of the people who have made new donations or increased their gift in just the last few weeks. Thanks this time to Robert Ringler, MD, Julia Negrelli, James West, Lloyd Brodsky, Evelyn Rosado, Dave Heineman, Rachel Helen Downs, Holly Brooks, Megan Erie, LJ, Steve Vigliotti, Julie Tibu Mishkin, Vlad, David Grisales, Jacob Wagner, Lori Force, Mitch Heitema, Linda Gomez, Teresa J. Sparling, Lisa Rogers, Abigail KB, Michelle Parata, Richard Thompson, Alex Shear, Henning Colesman Freiberger, R.D., Lois Heitner, Carla, Sharon Rosenzweig, Farrell Baczynski, Carolyn Potts, Ruth Mendham, David Sperling, Connor Bryson, Andy Parrish McGuire, Alex Greenberg Warsek, Corinne Stevens, Lisa Santiago, and Lauren Nakata. Thank you.